0: Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody, this is Islam for Christians, episode 49, Biblical Figures in Islam, part 5, Joshua, Saul, and a king named Talut. Joshua was the Bible's greatest military leader. It was Joshua who conquered the Promised Land and quite literally put the God of Israel on the world's map. And like David Ben-Gurion, more than 3,000 years later, Joshua cleared the land for Israeli settlement and flexed the military muscle of the Jews. But unlike Ben-Gurion, who was in actuality either an atheist, a pantheist, or a very, very late convert to actual religious Judaism, Ben-Gurion founded Israel more as an ethnostate than a theocracy you know, more interested in the Hebrews as a people than the Hebrew God. But regardless, unlike his modern equivalent, you know, who was Ben-Gurion, the biblical Joshua clearly believed in the Torah. He believed in the God of Israel, and he credited much of his military success to his faith in the one true God. And this would be a familiar archetype later on for Muslims. But for some reason, for all his accomplishments in the Bible, Joshua isn't even mentioned in the Quran. Sort of. You know, his name isn't there, yet there is at least one single passage in which he may have been mentioned. And it wasn't for the reasons he would be mentioned in the Bible. It wasn't for conquests or Jericho or anything like that. It was when he was under Moses. And Joshua was one of the spies sent into the promised land. Well, probably. Uh, Let me read the passage here uh, that might be Joshua. This is the Quran, Surah 5, verses 21 to 23. This is the Sahih International translation, which I think is the easiest to flow version of this. O my people, enter the blessed land, i.e. Palestine, which Allah has assigned to you and do not turn back from fighting in Allah's cause, and thus become losers. They said, O Moses, indeed within it is a people of tyrannical strength, and indeed we will never enter it until they leave it, but if they leave it, then we will enter. Then said two men from those who feared to disobey upon whom Allah had bestowed favor, in other words, Joshua, Enter upon them through the gate, for when you have entered it, you will be predominant, and upon Allah rely if you should be believers. So, when relating this to the Bible, the key number here is two. There were two men who feared God. Now, in the Bible, when Moses sent spies out to the promised land, only two of them, Caleb. And Joshua came back with encouraging reports and faith in God that the conquest was possible. I mean, after all, if you really think about it, the report should have been irrelevant to the next military move, you know, because God said to go in. So, really, shouldn't that be enough? So, these two righteous men, given the biblical account of Caleb and Joshua, almost surely refers to the two of them. But again, it doesn't mention them by name. But really, I'm sure that's who is being talked about here, because really, who else could it be? So that's it from the Quran. So for better or worse, Joshua doesn't play much of a part in the Quran, or really in Islam generally. Not that his work was unappreciated by the Muslims, it's just not a big part Um, of Islamic sources, of the story of the Quran, uh, which is rather prophetic in a weird sort of way when you think about it. Because when the new Joshua, you know, the new Joshua archetype, David Ben-Gurion, when he swept into Palestine in the 20th century, once again clearing out the promised land, version 2.0, in that case, the main enemy would be Muslims. Yeah, it was Arabs, basically some of whom were and still are Christians. But Muslims would be, by far, the most displaced group in all of this. So, how crazy is it that such a huge biblical narrative is nearly absent from the Quran? Isn't it a strange coincidence that the whole biblical story of clearing Israel isn't a Quranic thing, or at least an epically minor thing in the Muslim holy book? Now. Don't read too much into this. I'm not drawing any political or theological inferences from all of that. It's just a really, really interesting thing to think about from our vantage point in the 21st century. You know, we live in a time where most of us, if not all of us by now, have known nothing but strife between the Jewish state of Israel and the Palestinians. So. No Joshua, no marching around the city of Jericho, no walls tumbling down, no miracle at Gibeon, you know, no grand miracle where Joshua requests that the sun stand still and God grants this request and holds the sun so Joshua can fight in the daylight, no hailstones from heaven and very little record of the conquest of Canaan. And this actually makes sense because the Quran is not the record of the Jewish people. In the same way that the Bible is, you know, it's more the record of the holy people, you know, than the Jewish people as a whole. So, how Canaan was conquered is far less important to Islam, which tends to focus more on the lessons learned. And not that there weren't great lessons in the book of Joshua, most notably obedience and the military consequences of disobeying a direct order from God. You know, Muhammad would actually pontificate on something similar after an early Muslim battle went less than spectacularly. You know, similar to the way one man taking plunder from Jericho caused a loss in the next battle. You know, we'll get back, we'll get to that in future history episodes. You know, these, these are actually terrific Islamic themes. And you'd think the Quran would love that. But alas, <laughs> Joshua just did not make the cut. You know, maybe there are just too many lessons too similar to that. And Joshua simply could not distinguish himself from the biblical figures of greater stature. So that means we have to move on past Joshua, past the conquest of the promised land, past the judges, (laughs) and all the way on to the age of kings. Now, for those who remember Sunday school or ccd or wherever it is that you went you know we start with the first king saul now how did saul become king this story tends to stick in a in a child's head particularly in america because american christians you know this fits right in with our national narrative you know it's almost something like out of something out of history class even more than religion class Because it sounds, the themes of how Saul became king in the Bible sounds like something right out of Boston, you know, circa 1776, or Paris at a similar time, or anywhere in history, that they thought the only good king was one with a severed head. So, in this story, the Israelites want a king. They want a centralized authority to make them like other nations. And the prophet Samuel warns them against this, giving a pretty good sermon on tyranny. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 8. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the 10th of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he will put them to work. He will take the 10th of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. Now, that's a pretty good warning, but they didn't listen. They never listen. That's a, <laughs> a pretty depressing Old Testament theme. It happens over and over and over again. So they don't listen. And the chosen king is Saul, who becomes a decent commander in his own right. But Saul is not the most pious guy in the world. And despite being king... You know he, always, he still, at this point, has Samuel looking over his shoulder and telling him what God wants him to do. So, you have this strange situation where the prophet, the man with the direct line to God, is subordinate to an earthly king. Now, if that sounds backward to you, it probably seemed backward to Samuel and to those like him who would follow. You know, can you even imagine what this would look like in an Islamic context? You know, imagine an early Muslim battle, and Muhammad tells Hamza that God said to hold back. But Hamza overrides him, saying, you know what, we're going to attack anyway. You know, I know better. I'm the higher authority. That sounds absolutely ridiculous, and for a good reason. Because Muhammad combined both prophet and king so he never had to deal with the prophet-king dance that would come to dominate the Israeli Age of Kings. You know, Muhammad was smart enough not to do everything himself, of course, but ultimately, as the man talking to God, he would control the bigger-picture military strategy of his people. Now, the Quran briefly mentions Saul, so he does make it, sort of, although the Quran does not call him Saul or anything similar at all. It gives his name as Talut. Now, Talut just means tall. Saul was pretty tall, too, and there's no question this is supposed to be Saul. But as you'll see, this doesn't quite follow the biblical narrative either. Talut seems to be a mixture of Saul and Gideon from the Bible. Now, quick Bible story here. Gideon was well before Saul in the time of Judges. Gideon was the guy who defeated the Midianites. He was a prophet and a military leader, and actually declined to be made a king, because he thought it would be unpious for anyone other than God to rule Israel. That was kind of a foreshadowing of the age of kings that would come later. Um, For the purposes of the Islamic story of Saul slash Gideon, known as Talut, this is the relevant biblical passage you need to know uh, from Judges chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. I love this story for the record. It's really great Um, because God intentionally shrinks the Israeli army to prove that it is he, not Israeli military might, that actually wins battles. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is, Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel itself would boast against me, saying, My own strength has saved me. So announce to the army, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog does from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down to their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300, who kept over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So if you didn't follow the math there, a force of 32,000 plus just went down to 300. And once that was done, those 300 surrounded the Midian camp. They blew their horns and created chaos in the camp. So God started them to, God caused them to start killing each other. Uh, Not the Israelites, but the, um, the Midianites. And Gideon's men chased them away. They captured two commanders and then brought their heads to Gideon by the Jordan River. So yeah, there's a reason that story isn't well known. I don't recall it being read at church. Uh, It's not in Sunday school or any other kind of religious instruction. And for very good reason. They just decapitated two people. Um, Although, let's be honest, you know, there are many times you would love to see God take a few scalps, but it's just not something generally associated with holiness. You know that whole kind of violent aesthetic just doesn't really work once the New Testament completes the Bible. Can you even imagine, say, Peter bringing Jesus a couple of severed heads? It just it wouldn't happen. So it is something that tends to be put to the side. Now I told you that story to tell you this one: the Quranic story of the Saul-like figure named. Talut, we haven't gotten to his story yet. So the Quranic story starts with the familiar story of Saul, and then mixes it with the river story from Gideon. We actually see David and Goliath in this story too. It's almost like Saul, Gideon, and David were thrown into a blender with the Midianites and the Philistines. Or rather, the stories are just being told in rapid-fire fashion, extremely rapid-fire fashion. And that makes them look like they're linked in a historical narrative when actually they're not. You know, The Qur'an may just be assuming knowledge of these stories and getting straight to the moral point. And to be fair to the Qur'an, it is making an entirely different point than the Bible is making with this story. And I think that's the reason for this style that you'll see. More on that in a bit. Just remember that this is a sermon from the Qur'an not a record keeping history of a certain people now the quran is making a specific point here so judge for yourself here's the story you know think of it more like a parable than a history lesson what is the overriding theme that you see here this is from surah 2 ayats 246 to 251 Have you not considered the assembly of the children of Israel after the time of Moses, when they said to a prophet of theirs, Send to us a king, and we will fight in the way of Allah. He said, Would you perhaps refrain from fighting if battle was prescribed for you? They said, And why should we not fight in the cause of Allah when we have been driven out from our homes and from our children? But when battle was prescribed for them— They turned away, except for a few of them, and Allah is knowing of the wrongdoers. And their prophet said to them, Indeed, Allah has sent you Saul as a king. They said, How can he have kingship over us? Well, we are more worthy of kingship than him, and he has not been given any measure of wealth. He said, Indeed, Allah has chosen him over you. And has increased him abundantly in knowledge and in stature. And Allah gives his sovereignty to whom he wills. And Allah is all-encompassing in favor and knowing. And their prophet said to them, Indeed, a sign of his kingship is that the chest will come to you. The chest will come to you, in which is assurance from your Lord and a remnant of what the family of Moses and the family of Aaron had left, carried by the angels. Indeed, in that is a sign for you, if you are believers. And when Saul went forth with the soldiers, he said, Indeed, Allah will be testing you with a river. So whoever drinks from this river is not of me, and whoever does not taste it is indeed of me excepting one who takes from it in the hollow of his hand. But they drank from it, except a very few of them. Then when he had crossed it along with those who believed with him, they said, There is no power for us today against Goliath and his soldiers. But those who were certain that they would meet Allah said, How many a small company has overcome a large company by permission of Allah? and Allah is with the patient. And when they went forth to face Goliath and his soldiers, they said, Our Lord, pour upon us patience, and plant firmly our feet, and give us victory over the disbelieving people. So they defeated them, by permission of Allah, and David killed Goliath, and Allah gave him the kingship and wisdom, in other words, prophethood, and taught him, from that which he will. And if it were not for Allah checking some people by means of others, the earth would have been corrupted. But Allah is the possessor of bounty for the worlds. Much of that is going to be familiar to a Bible reader, and there is a ton of overlap. First off, Just one aside here to clarify something, you know, something you may have noticed, I actually said twice, that chest they refer to, that chest that resurfaced, that's the Ark of the Covenant. So in the Quranic story, Saul has recovered the Ark, or at least it was recovered for him. And God is using that to demonstrate Saul's legitimacy. This also represents the heart of the Israeli people coming back to them. You know, the Ark being their heart coming back to them as a sign for them. That their heart, their lifeblood, as symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant, is and always will be God. The God. Yahweh. Allah. You know, it's something they really, really should remember. Of course, as people who have read the Old Testament know. They don't. And this is kind of a theme throughout this passage, this idea from story to story in this passage that God leads the victory. That's such a key takeaway. If you are right with God, everything will flow well downstream. If you are not right with God, the river dries up and so does the strength of your people. God came first. The ark, then Saul, then battle. The drinking test, then the battle. The faithfulness of David, then the victory. And this is pretty similar to what you will find in the Old Testament. Similarly, the Quran is making another specific point by using this story, or should I say stories, they just happen to be together. A small army of believers is better than a large one full of feckless cowards. Now, that's pretty much universally true, regardless of time. Because even today, a hundred special forces soldiers could probably take out a thousand teenage conscripts. But this isn't just about martial skill. It's about faith. That's why the story of Gideon's soldiers at the stream is placed in this parable. Or perhaps Saul's repeat of that same test. And that's why it goes straight to David and Goliath, too. That was a two-person metaphor for the idea that small and faithful is stronger than large and arrogant. It was a concept the early Muslims relied upon as well. So the Quran is driving this story home, and for good reason. This material was revealed late in Muhammad's ministry, sort of. You know, so the Muslims had already seen this phenomenon firsthand. Because while the exact year of this revelation is sort of murky, I'm pretty certain this came after the Battle of Badr in 624, where the Muslims defeated a force three times their size. And it was a small force, too, a little over 300 Muslims. So 300, just like Gideon that probably meant a great deal among Muslims who knew that old Testament story, you know, and are hearing, Oh, wow, we did that too. You know, now in the biblical account, you know, all these things are true. Um, the small force of 300 defeating the greater force, um, all the lessons of the Quran apply. If you stop and think about the story, but, A key distinction here that we should make is that the biblical account has two functions that the Quranic one does not. The first, of course, as always, is keeping a historical record of how the Israelites came to conquer this land. It tells us what happened to the Midianites. Now, the Quran could not care less about the Midianites, and the Hebrew uh, Hebrew parable has God shrinking and shrinking and shrinking the army to make sure that the Israelites credited God with the ensuing victory, and not themselves, or their own martial skill, or strength, or military genius. So, the Israelites went to war with 300 because God said so. The Muslims went to war with 300 because that was all that they had. Although, from a certain point of view, you could say that it was the same thing because the Muslims actually had left many faithless soldiers back in Mecca, before the Hijra, those who refused to become Muslims. By becoming Muslims, they were drinking the water like Gideon's men, or, in the common Islamic version, Saul's men. Uh, This made it into the Hadith, actually, where Muhammad draws the comparison to to the Battle of Badr. This is Sahih Bukhari uh, 3957, narrated al-Bara. The companions of the Prophet Muhammad, who took part in Badr, told me that their number was that of Saul's, i.e. Talut, same person. The number of Saul's companions who crossed the river of Jordan with him, and they were over 310 men. By Allah, none crossed the river with him, but a believer. One of those believers was Ali, who was Muhammad's sort of son, his cousin, and eventual son-in-law. Ali was a young man at the time, probably early 20s, but his status as a warrior became legendary after Badr. Not only did he win one of the first three duels, along with his much older relative and legendary lion hunter, Hamza, but Ali is largely believed to have caused Half the enemy casualties at Badr. Now, that's wild in any battle of any age. That's completely insane. It seems impossible. Can a young man on faith alone become that prolific of a warrior? Now, in the religious world, absolutely that can happen. It's not the size of the man which brings victory, it's the size of the faith in the man you know, kind of like that other guy who was vaulted to prominence fighting in a more powerful man's army, David, or as the Muslims call him, Dawood. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time, inshallah.